May's meeting Trump, but who's going to get the most out of it? NATO forges friendships in the Middle East with a new HQ in Kuwait. This Marine can meet the women of the US Marine Corps and the Norwegian military experiment. How one unit tried a 50-50 gender split with surprising results. The Prime Minister will meet the American President tomorrow. Theresa May will be the first foreign leader to meet Donald Trump since his inauguration last week. So why has Britain made it to the front of the queue? I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, formerly the Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and Christopher Lee, our own defence analyst. Hello to both of you. Uh, so, Professor Clark, how come she got the first invite then? Well, I think it's mainly because it plays to Donald Trump's agenda. Um, he likes the idea of Brexit Britain. This is a Britain that is kicking over the traces of the old alliances and the old um, stultifying arrangements, as Trump sees it. And so it's quite a careful thought. I mean, there was a, there was a view that um, possibly the um, Israeli prime minister, Netanyahu, might be the first one to visit the White House. And that would have been very controversial. But this way, it's a sort of a, it's a standard uh, invitation to a, an old ally, but it's an old ally in a new situation. So it's very much in, in sort of Trump's agenda. And I think the fact is, um, for good or bad, he does like Britain. He has lots of affection for this country. Christopher Lee, playing to Trump's agenda, how do you think the meeting will go exactly? It's not, well, first and foremost, it is not the Prime Minister um, having an away day to see Mr Trump and the two of them sitting down. Everybody goes. There are about 40 or 50 people going from Whitehall, and these include the Foreign Secretary, for example. Um, and they are in the main meeting, which everybody sits around on the sofas, there are note-takers, the whole thing. The second part of it is then, uh, I think, more important, and that is that the Prime Minister is going to be talking to the Congress, going to be talking to people within the Senate and also within the House. They are going to get their first look at the Prime Minister and they're very impressionable people, and they're going to be impressed by her. And so when, as inevitable, you get the m conflict between president, i.e. the executive, and the lawmakers, i.e. Congress, her attitude and whether they should consider what she says becomes very important. So I actually think the important part of the meeting, apart from the personal thing, and the personal thing is very important. I was at Reagan's when Mrs. Thatcher went to see Reagan for the first time. She came up. She said, there's nothing there. And Peter Carrington, who was the Foreign Secretary, said, yes, but that will come together later on. And I think what happens, what we should think, is don't expect anything big. It'll all come together later on. Professor Michael Clark, um, apart from trade, I suppose, one big thing they'll be talking about is how to tackle international terrorism and NATO, of course. Um, how much do you think that these comments by Donald Trump about, about torture and the use of waterboarding will feature? How do you think Theresa May will play all of that? I think she'll probably make the point that <clears throat> we have a long-standing approach to torture and waterboarding is regarded as torture. You can't get away with saying it's enhanced interrogation techniques because it is torture. And there's a lot of evidence going back to way before uh, the jihadist challenge um, that it, it's, a, it's a pretty brutal thing to do to anyone. 
Um, and so I think she'll stick to that. And I don't think Trump will major on it because he looks as if he's backing off some of his own instincts in favour of what the people around him are saying. But they will be talking about international terrorism. Mm. She will want to, want to make it clear that we've got really common cause here. She'll want to make it clear that uh, there's lots of common cause in NATO. And I just suspect she will stay away from issues of climate change or issues of uh, the Iran deal, the nuclear deal with Iran or uh, the problems of intelligence sharing. Um, I suspect that she'll, she'll steer clear of those things and she'll major on terrorism, on NATO and the outline, at least the outline of a good free trade deal between our two countries. If she can come back with something on those three areas, then she'll have done pretty well. When you say you think she's he's backing off his instincts already, what's the evidence of that? Oh, well, just that he, sa- he said that he will go with his Secretary of State. I mean, he says, I'm convinced that, ter- that uh, torture works, but my Secretary of State tells me that we should not do things which are regarded as internationally uh, against international law. Mm. And so he's, he, again, he's, he, you know, he's, not, he's not stupid, this man, um, although he's very controversial. He, 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 he spoke rather honestly, saying himself, he said, I think tr- torture works. But the people around me have got doubts, so I'll back them. Christopher Lee, um, in that first yeah. week, um, how do you think that relationship is going with his Secretary of State for Defence, General Mattis? It's going very well in, in, in as much that the General Mattis is much admired on both sides of the Atlantic, don't forget. I mean, one of his greatest fans is the recent CDS here. Uh, General David Richards, and he speaks very highly of him. He also speaks very highly of the fact that he knows what's going on in Europe and he knows how to put it to the President. So the President has said certain things. The General has already said to him, cool down, this is not necessarily the way forward. And I think that first week... And he's listening. He's he's, he's listening because, as as Michael said, he's not dumb. And also he's listening to his Secretary of State who's in international law must be followed. And coming from somebody who was running something like Exxon, that's pretty simple to understand. Mm, Michael Clark, um, I suppose there will be big headlines from this meeting. How important in the grand scheme of things do you think it is? Oh, I think it's very important to us much more so than usually these British-American meetings are, because, you know, here we are with Brexit Britain. Um, We're not clear quite where the American administration is going, and it's very important that the Prime Minister gets the tone of it right. If it looks as if she's just being a poodle to Trump, and and, and Trump turns out to be a disastrous president, then that will do her a lot of harm, both domestically and with Mm -hmm. our other European allies. On the other hand, she is getting a, a bonus by, by see, be, seen, being seen to be quite close to the Americans. And she is, she's actually used the phrase yesterday and this morning, special relationship. I, I really dislike this phrase, but she used it. She said, this is a good time to review our special relationship. And so she wants to create an upbeat message to indicate that she's not, she's not like, going to be like Tony Blair. She'll just have a tummy tickle by the American president. And that's a, a gr- gruesome thought in this mm-hmm. case. Um, but that she will have a, a, a close, as it were, um, instrumental relationship. She will have a sort of a, a proper give-and-take business relationship with this new president. Mm-hmm. And so if she gets it right, there's a lot to be gained from this trip. Don't forget, when they come back, uh, there's a group of people who will sit around the different departments, Department of Defence, uh, MOD, uh, Foreign Office, etc., etc., and the Cabinet Office, and they will say... The people that also sat in the room, the people we also talked to who just said hello or whatever, who were they? What are their attitudes? What were they like? And we will start building up an extension of the files we've all got on them. In other words, this is for the long term, Mm. not just from a Friday Uh, afternoon in Washington. Of course, uh, Christopher, you think a meeting coming after this one in Washington is one that's actually more strategically important. I Uh, do so immediately because uh, the, the Prime Minister then goes to Turkey. 
Now, Turkey and the, and the United Kingdom have got some special relationship, especially from last year, after the supposed uh, coup attempt in Turkey. Uh, the British responded very positively. You know, lots of telephone calls, you know, how can we help, whatever uh, we can do. And don't forget, we're all in, in NATO together and we're all standing by each other. Well, the Turks like that. And the Turks have had a hard time from all sorts of people since then. And now they're in bed very much, or in, in a new bed, with, with, with the Russians. The people I was talking to last night were saying, you just imagine uh, the idea that the, 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 the Turkish uh, Air Force is operating with Russian Air Force. Imagine what the Turks would, would, uh, would, would do, like, would you like to sort of base a few aircraft in Chalik or, or something like this? And this is the sort of thing that Mrs. Thatcher and her team again, not just one lady going, but a whole team going, can get alongside people that they haven't got directly alongside for some time. And therefore, she will have an influence. And if she can be identified, she is the first footer, if you like, into that Middle East conflict mm. that we've had other, other than Russia. So I think that internationally, and a lot of the people, forget Trump, a lot of the people on his team will recognise that the lady went to Turkey. Mm. Gentlemen, stay with us. Now, one of America's most senior generals has told BFBS that the UK and US will maintain a close military relationship following Brexit and the election of President Donald Trump. Well, here's General David Perkins, who commands US Army Training and Doctrine, speaking to our reporter, Tim Cooper. I think the good deal is between our two nations, we have such a long history, there seems to be a continuity of sort of big view of the world and, and what right looks like. So I, I think what you're going to see is they're going to continue to be very close, work very closely with each other. Um, I think uh, a lot of dialogue is going to be coming forth. And I think that's really almost the most important thing is that we understand the visualization and that people understand why certain nations are doing things and how do you sort of complement each other as you sort of move forward together. A lot of threats in the world that have yeah. changed exponentially since Afghanistan first happened, since Iraq, where you served. Um, what are the key threats we need to be aware of now? I'm thinking particularly in Europe, Russia, would that be your assessment? Yeah, so <clears throat> the challenge we have as militaries across the world is when I grew up in the Cold War, you you pretty had a very you had a very focused threat at that point the Soviet Union there was much disagreement about it you knew where they were you knew where they weren't they were there was a sort of constraint geopolitically et cetera like that and they were easy to identify you know they all had the same uniforms et cetera the problem we have in the world now is we have uh, a a wide range of threats you have possible peer competitors, but you also have non-nation state actors, have nation state capabilities. You have non-nation state actors that are, um, you know, supported by nation states. And so almost by definition, a lot of our threats try to remain ill-defined. They want to remain unidentifiable because that is a very difficult threat for nation states to deal with. We deal very we deal very well with identifiable threats. You can discriminate between combatant and non-combatant. It's very difficult because of our values and value on human life to deal with sort of uh, an undefined threat that you cannot uh, clearly identify. So I think that is probably the biggest challenge that we no longer can specialize and say, well, I'm only going to have peer-to-peer capability. I'm only going to do counterterrorism. The problem is we have to do all of it. And I think that's the biggest challenge. 
we, we can't focus on any one area. We have to do all of it against a number of threats that are ill-defined. And just finally, let, let's focus in on the Middle East. For so long, that's been the USA's, Great Britain's, and much mm -hmm. of the world's focal point. T two issues, really. How much of a focal point is that now for America? And, and secondly, Syria, we've seen the distressing pictures. It's not working, is it? What more should the USA, Britain do? Well, I think um, I don't think the Middle East is going to become any less important. It's still going to be, I think, a, a continual source of conflict and frustration. I think the thing that will change is we won't have the option to only focus on that. Uh, so in the last number of years, we were uh, somewhat preoccupied with that part of the world. I think this is part of the complexity of the future, that there's enough opportunistic people around the world that they would love the U.S., the U.K., and others to be focused on one problem set while they could be adventurous and opportunistic in other parts of the world. We've seen that, and I think that we, we've got to back up a little bit, and, and we have to look across the globe and not let one uh, potential adversary think they can take advantage of us dealing with a problem in another part of the world. And Syria? Well, I, I think it is just part of the complexity of the Mideast. Uh, again, it shows, though, the possibility of if you have uh, a concerted effort, and I think this has always been the strength of the U.S. And, and Western nations in general, we always have a larger coalition than most of our adversaries we go against. And so I think the power of the international community is something that, that we have to leverage as best we can because that's sort of our strong suit. That was General David Perkins talking to our reporter, Tim Cooper. Still to come, women in combat, how the US Marine Corps do it, and the Norwegian 50-50 experiment. BFBS SIPREP. America's newly appointed Defense Secretary James, Gem, James, General James Mattis has said the U.S.-NATO bond is unshakable and this week he called the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and also our own Defense Secretary to say so. Well, meanwhile, the alliance has been forging new relationships in the Middle East with the opening of a new HQ in Kuwait. Well, apparently General Mattis' first visit overseas will actually be Japan and South Korea. Uh, Professor Clark, uh, former Director General of the United, Royal United Services Institute, is still with us. Uh, do you think Mr Stoltenberg was relieved after he spoke to General Mattis? Um, I think he will have been, yes, because uh, Jim Mattis is a great uh, Atlanticist, and I'm sure that Mattis will be saying that uh, uh, the, the basic outlines of American policy towards NATO remain unchanged. And remember, I mean, when uh, President Trump, as he now is, when he called NATO obsolete, I think, or we hope anyway, he was using the word obsolete in a rather American sense, meaning in need of modernization. You know, British usage of the word obsolete means it's, it's past its, its time, it's, it's useless. But I think what he meant, and I'm sure what General Mattis will be saying, is that this is about modernization and making NATO more lean and mean for what it's got to do. And in that respect, I think that uh, Mr. Stoltenberg will agree with Mattis's view. Christopher. Well, I mean, he's getting this officially, isn't he? But let's not forget that the Deputy Secretary General at NATO is an American, Rose Guttermiller. Uh, who was the Undersecretary for Arms Control and Security uh, in the administration. So the Secretary General himself has got no... And, and by the way, an American is always the uh, Deputy Secretary General. has got no doubt in his mind for, and for two reasons. One, you know, she's bending his ear if she has to. And the second part of it, you've only got to look at the structure and the wiring diagram of the whole security tapestry 
of NATO and America. Don't forget, America's front line is NATO. You've only got to look at that, and he is perfectly aware what he simply wants to do is to have it on record. Mm. This discussion between uh, General Mattis and our Defence Secretary, they talked about working together against terrorism. Uh, Michael Clark, do you think that's going to signify anything new? No, I think it'll be just more of the same. The fact is that the intelligence relationship, as we always know, is very close. And uh, British intelligence matters more to America now than it has done for a very long time because of our knowledge of the what's going on in terrorist terms and what is done at GCHQ and also the fact that we've got more human intelligence deployed around the Middle East um, in relative terms than the United States. So I don't think there'll be any new departures on the counterterrorism. Um, front, it'll just be reinforcing what we already do. Although, insofar as the the struggle against ISIS in uh, Iraq, Iraq and Saudi and uh, Syria, if that is is really ramped up by uh, Mr. Trump, then the British will have to think about you know what do they do about that? Can they go with it and ramp ramp our uh, collaboration up, which would be quite difficult. Mm-hmm. We just stick with what we're doing and, and show that we're useful on several different fronts to the Americans. And Mike, don't, let's not forget Five Eyes. Let's not forget that intelligent goes, is not just a transatlantic operation. You've got Australia, New Zealand, uh, etc., involved in a wider intelligent picture, which a lot of it comes through, uh, f- through London mm. and the analysis of it. And when you look at where uh, Mr. Trump's foreign policy is going to uh, direct itself, uh, considerably during his four years. It's in the Far East. The Australians have got a perfect picture of what's going on in the Far East, which is one reason the Americans have put, put, put a B-52 a squadron plus F-22s plus 10,000 um, uh, 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 ground support troops, etc. Five eyes should never be forgotten, the, mm. the idea of bringing in those Australasian uh, intelligence. Professor Michael Clark, just before you go, just tell us a bit more about what you know about the opening of this new headquarters this week in Kuwait by NATO. Mm. Well, uh, this goes back to the uh, the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative, which uh, goes back to, what, uh, 2004. And it was actually brought up, at the, in my understanding, at the NATO um, summit in Chicago in 2012, whereas the, uh, the Istanbul Cooperation Initiative, the ICI, actually suggested a more formal relationship. And NATO uh, took the idea up, thought it was a good idea. And so last November 2016... Uh, it was announced that there would be uh, the opening of a, of a, a new centre, and that centre is now going to open in Kuwait. So it, it links NATO more formally with the Gulf Cooperation Council states, and particularly with Bahrain and Qatar, Kuwait, the United Arab Emirates, and then it links them as well, of course, through that to Oman and Saudi Arabia. And what they will do, of course, which is always the key issue, is that they will, they'll talk about joint strategic analysis, they'll talk about civil emergency planning, uh, military to military cooperation, which is probably mm. the most important of all of this, and some strategic communications issues. Mm. So it's a way of actually linking the, the sets of forces together. And again, it's important for NATO to show to the United States that it's got some imaginative ideas about how it can help our mutual allies when yes. it's collapsing around us. We can do something to help stability in the Gulf. Yeah, indeed. Interesting time for it to open. Professor Michael Clark from the former Director General of the Royal United Service Institute and now an advisor to the Defence Select Committee. Thank you for your time today.
Now, this week, the army has been criticised for missing its recruitment target by 28%. Just over 6,900 regular troops joined the army in the last year. The target was more than 9,500. Could the fact that infantry roles are being opened up to women change anything in the future? Well, to date, no female has served officially as a Royal Marines commando in the UK. In the US, however, women have served in the Marines since 1918, and the first three female Marines to serve as infantry women have just taken up their posts in a ground combat unit. Well, as the UK prepares to accept the first females into its own infantry, Hannah King has been taking a look at how the US make their Marines. In the US, they do things differently. Some of these young women are no more than 17. They're hundreds of miles from home, and the past three months of their lives has sounded a lot like this. Get up there! It's the time critical event, and you're wasting time! But if you want to be a US Marine, this is what you must do. And here on Paris Island, the training depot for all female Marines, there are no special dispensations made on account of gender. The guys have a lot of questions for us, I know that. My, my brother's best friend is a Marine. He, he questions us stuff about that, like, oh, wait, can you, how long do you get to do your hair in the morning? Like, we don't get to do our hair in the morning. Many Marines here seem to have very different motivations for joining up compared to those in the UK. It's often a way to fund their education, as serving four years means their fees and some living costs will be paid. Others simply feel it's their duty to serve their country before they go off to become teachers, hairdressers and lawyers. Every little thing the Marines learn has a ditty, even something as simple as taking a shower. To ensure uniformity, the recruits sidestep in lines when moving, and when asked a question, the word I is forbidden and replaced with this recruit. You have to pull yourself. This recruit is. Do the work too. This recruit is. Get out! The final hurdle to becoming a U.S. Marine is completion of the Crucible, a torturous 54-hour endurance test involving a lot of marching and obstacles to test physical, mental, and moral strength on very little food and sleep. We have a lot to be thankful for, and no one's shooting at us. Right now we're just having to carry packs, and we have a snack in between, so there's nothing to complain about, ma'am. You're all so happy. Like, wh why is that? Is it because you're pretty much done? Um, it's really this group right here. We, we're just, we just get excited over every little thing, even if it, if it hurts. We, just get, we find a way to get excited over it, ma'am. After their final nine-mile hike, as the sun rises, they march back into camp. On the parade ground, the revered Eagle Globe and Anchor awaits them, the sign of the U.S. Marines. Tears rolling down their faces, they become the newest members of the Corps, serving under a brand-new commander-in-chief. Interesting times lie ahead for all. Hannah King for BFBS on Paris Island in South Carolina. 
So, what's the current situation for women in the British Army right now? Well, according to the Army website, women can now apply for the following units within the Royal Armoured Corps. The Royal Lancers, the King's Royal Hussars, the Royal Tank Regiment, uh, all Army Reserve Royal Armoured Corps regiments will now welcome women too. Well, women will be able to join the remaining Royal Armoured Corps units or the infantry by the end of 2018. Well, I'm joined now by Elizabeth Braw, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Good to speak to you today. You're going to talk to us about a country which has experimented with full gender integra- integration in its military already, Elizabeth. Tell us about Norway. That's right, yes. And this, yes, Norway is, uh, you might call it an ideas factory for NATO. Uh, for example, they, had, uh, they have the world's first or NATO's first ever all-female uh, special forces unit because they discovered that there was just no way women would pass, uh, let alone uh, stay in the, the regular uh, special forces, but they also discovered uh, through decades of trying to recruit women to their armed forces, and by, and by the way, all combat positions have been open now since 1988, it was just extremely hard. So two years ago, or actually uh, in October 2014, they decided to make one of their units uh, 50-50, so 50% men, 50% women, and uh, that's and they... they conducted the experiment and now uh, the findings are in. And this was uh, fully integrated in so much as they were sort of living, working, sharing the same sleeping areas as well. How did it go? Absolutely, yes. So they, um, as as all Norwegian armed forces, uh, shared bedrooms. But of course, it's very different when it's just one girl out of a, a hundred, <laughs> and when it's fifty percent women. And um, it went very well. Uh, and I think what's so interesting about this experiment is they wanted to, f- the armed forces wanted to f- find out whether they could teach soldiers to just think of each other as as, as, mm. as brothers and sisters. And that's what they did. I mean, it's it's quite remarkable. They didn't have any problems with sexual harassment. Five incidents total um, uh, where girls or women felt um, harassed and it was just sort of locker room talk and none of them none of these women considered it serious um, uh, no sex just once uh, one case of, of a woman and a man having sex uh, and uh, better performance uh, in, in, in terms of the, the combat ability, mm. uh, the commander told me. So it's quite remarkable. And has any of this had any kind of effect on recruitment, be it uh, amongst uh, women recruits or overall in the Norwegian army? Well, so the, the experiment only concluded in, in this past October. It had run for two years. Um, I think it will have an effect. Now this, this particular battalion is, um, has conscripts, but even so, uh, it has 45% uh, female conscripts and, and 55% uh, men, obviously, and, and that's because the country introduced gender-neutral conscription last year, so girls can be drafted as well. But I think it will have an, an effect because... Um, uh, retaining, recruiting and retaining women has been such a problem and what, what this experiment w- found was that if women are not in a minority uh, they are a lot more comfortable with, with the whole um, uh, concept of, of military life I mean it sounds self-evident if you're mm-hmm. not in the minority you'll be, you'll be more comfortable but so f- until now throughout history women have always been a, a distinct minority mm-hmm. in the military Christopher Lee um, the MOD's come under fire this week after missing its recruitment target by 20 28% that was last year. Um, would recruiting more women make much difference? Women are not joining. It's very simple as that. Not, they're not signing up. I mean, they sign up for the reserves, uh, but they're not, not signing up in any quantities. Let us think of this very carefully. 28%. The 
It is the manning priority of the Chief of the General Staff, General Nick Carter. Mm. It's the biggest problem he says he has. And his concept of Army Doctrine 2017, which is in fact the future of the Army, lives on getting the uh, Manning figures right and they haven't got them right. Elizabeth Broad, do you think um, British, the British Army can learn anything from the Norwegians here? Absolutely. I, I, well, I think many male soldiers will probably contradict me, but... Uh, I think what the Norwegians show, and it wasn't self-evident when they started the experiment that soldiers could te- be taught to not think of each other as, as uh, men and women anymore. But because they, they uh, show, uh, as we have seen in this experiment, that it can be done, why, mm. can it not, why wouldn't it work elsewhere? Listen, good to speak to you. Elizabeth Braugh, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Thank you for your time today. This is BFBS SIGREP. Uh, Christopher, just before we go, um, it's worth mentioning that we heard this week from the North Korean defector who was based in London until recently. He's based in Ealing. Mm. Can you imagine a defector based in Ealing? Indeed. Anyway, North Korean embassy last year is a guy called Tai Hong Ho. Uh, unfortunately, the MI5 nicknamed him number 53. Mm. I mean, that's how relevant they are. Anyway, he, he did a runner. He's now back in South Korea... And he's saying that the North Koreans uh, are getting so fed up with their beloved leader that there could be a palace revolution. He's also saying that they're not anywhere near in developing a a missile that could reach, say, Los Angeles. Mm. But they are much closer than we think in developing a nuclear weapon. And if our beloved leader in North Korea felt threatened personally he would press the button. He's in Seoul. What will he be doing now? Uh, He'll be debriefed. That's likely to go on for a year, year and a half. And much of the time, he'll be telling them what he thinks they want to know. But what they really want to know is to get inside the mind of the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. And quite frankly, a second secretary in Ealing of the North Korean embassy is unlikely to know. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks for listening. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. We'll be back the same time next week from me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.